This podcast is a marketing communication and is for investment professionals only. The information and views expressed, including any reference to specific investments, does not constitute investment advice, nor should it be treated as a recommendation for any investments. Past performance is not a guide to future performance, and the value of an investment may fall as well as rise. Welcome to Taking Stock, hosted by Finley Park. Welcome back to Finley Park's Taking Stock. I am your host, Silolikalakala. Today, Anthony and I will be discussing the Mega Cap 8, a topic that's been coming up a lot recently in our discussions with clients. In this discussion, we are going to explore what's next for these companies and unpick some of the key debates around their continued performance. Anthony, welcome. The market cap eight companies have performed really well this year, contributing almost 80% of the index's return. My question for you is, why is this the case, you think? Well, I think there are a few reasons, Cello. Firstly, interest rates are up, and there is greater concern today about corporate balance sheets and leverage. And of course, many of the mega caps have fortress balance sheets, you know, Microsoft, Alphabet, and so on. Each of them have more than $100 billion of cash on their balance sheets. So in some ways, they're seen as defensive, even though they're cyclical. I think another reason is that many of them continue to grow rapidly. And Microsoft, for instance, last quarter was growing in the mid-teens. Alphabet uh, recently has seen an acceleration in their advertising revenue with, with Search and YouTube returning back to double-digit growth this last quarter. Uh, and of course, um, we're all aware of NVIDIA uh, that is growing like a weed and benefiting from the huge global demand for their high-performing semiconductor ships. So uh, I think they're defensive. Uh, there's a growth angle here. And then I think maybe finally just AI and several of them are seen as, as AI beneficiaries, which has obviously been a very strong theme this year and a very strong driver for the stocks and, and has further propelled some of these mega cap eight stocks. I'm glad you mentioned AI. We'll get back to that. But for now, what do you think is going to cause this trend to uh, reverse, Anthony? That's a good question. So perhaps a few things. What One is slowing growth. Of course, the mega cap eight grew revenue at more than 20% during the past decade. And when you look forward, um, 2023, over the next, say, four or five years, I think the consensus believes that revenues are going to grow somewhat slower than that. And we would tend to agree. I mean, we're dealing with the law of large numbers here. You know, Amazon has $570 billion of revenues. Apple's at $380 billion. So just the size related to the slowing growth. I think the second thing is increasing competition. We doubt very much that the companies will stay neatly in their so-called swim lanes. I mean, competition is now greater between them, whether it's in social media, whether it's in cloud or, or indeed in AI. So increasing competitiveness between them. And then I think finally, antitrust pressure. There, is, there just seems to be greater regulatory scrutiny of these companies all over the world. And certainly when you look at the US, the government is ramping up efforts to rein in US monopoly power. And the FTC seems very serious about creating a more muscular competition agenda for America. And certainly there's bipartisan support for this. And so, you know, when most Americans are interviewed, they actually want more gov government regulation of these tech companies. And 
And so, you know, perhaps it's not the best time to be too big or too powerful as a, as a corporate. I would definitely agree with that. I was actually watching a documentary last night about TikTok and the rise of it and how it's influenced so many young people and the backlash from parents and regulators around what's going on. Exactly. And and actually, you know, talking about the rising competition, you know, Facebook as a social media platform in the past, you know, was very, very dominant. Whereas today, look at the rise of TikTok. So again, just, just highlighting the, the challenge here. You raise a good point there around these companies staying in their swim lanes. I know it's a term that we've used a lot internally uh, and actually reminds me in our recent newsletter, we had this chart just highlighting how difficult it is for the top companies in the world to stay in that position decade after decade. Do you maybe want to expand on that? Yes, absolutely. I mean, we, we've we looked at uh, the world's top 10 companies by market cap over the decades. And, and what it reveals is it's pretty rare for a company or or indeed a group of companies to consistently stay in that top 10. So, you know, if you look after the oil price spike in the 1970s, I think in the 80s, uh, six out of 10 um, of those top 10 companies in the world were oil companies. Uh, and then we had a, a bubble in the Japanese stock market and uh, uh, eight out of the top 10 companies in the world by market cap were, were Japanese companies. Then, of course, uh, the NASDAQ bubble uh, in the 2000s and, and seven of the top 10 were kind of TMT. So, you know, I think it's all just to say that history says this list will look very different in 10 years time. So given the list will look different, Anthony, what is our view then? How do these mega caps fit with our philosophy? Well, some of them fit very well uh, and others less well. Uh, and it's one reason why we are particularly selective uh, when it comes to the mega cap eight. Um, and I think where they don't fit so well is, is frequently related to our lack of conviction in the inevitability of the outcome. And that's very much a hallmark of our investment philosophy. And, and, and because of the binary outcomes that some of those companies face, um, you know, they tend not to be such a good fit. To pick on a point you made there, which is quite important around the inevitability of the outcome, because that's something, as you said, it's the hallmark of our philosophy. Um, so can you expand on that a little bit, please? Yeah, perhaps one of the best ways to expand on it is to highlight a few examples of companies that that we don't own where they're less good fit. So take Apple, for instance. There's a lot of single product risk with the iPhone comprising more than 50% of sales and increasingly relying on pricing growth. Uh, and that's because of the level of saturation of users. So if you look at the iPhone, I think the price has doubled since it's been uh, launched. Um, Apple is also fairly reliant on China as their number two market as a source of profits. And of course, geopolitics makes the outcome there a lot more uncertain. Moving to Meta, um, we talked a little bit about uh, the competition, increasing competition in social media. Uh, and the rise of, of TikTok, but you've also got YouTube, you've got Instagram, you've got social media through gaming platforms. And then if you just simply look at the amount of hours that adults spend on social media, that's been plateauing over the last few years, I think at around two and a half hours per day. Yeah, and that's since 2017, I believe. Yes, exactly. So I think, you know, there we would have questions about not only the, the inevitability, uh, given the competition, but also the growth. And then maybe finally to take Tesla as an example, I think with Tesla, I mean, it's obviously an amazing company, but I think we're not confident enough to say that it's not an auto manufacturer and therefore beholden to the economics of the auto industry, which 
as everyone knows, you know, is defined by a lot of competition, high capital intensity. And uh, so auto companies are not good fits with our investment philosophy. We would rather buy the companies that provide the content to cars like analog semiconductors, for instance. And so when you look at the valuation of Tesla, it sort of implies that it'll have both superior margins and uh, take a lot of market share. And to us, that's just simply not a high inevitability. Anthony, we've talked a little bit about the mega caps uh, that we do not own. So the ones that we do own, how are they different? Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about the ones we do own. So Microsoft, which we've held in the portfolio for more than a decade. We think that despite having over $200 billion of revenues, that Microsoft can grow revenues in the mid-teens, uh, really, for, for a number of years. And that's going to be driven by the core, uh, Office, Office 365, Teams, and so on, but also by cloud computing, Microsoft Azure, which is now a very substantial business. It's the market for, for cloud computing continues to grow rapidly. They are taking share. And we're very, very excited about how Microsoft is positioned in that market. And then I think finally, AI. I mean, AI has been uh, a strong topic of interest this year. I mean, it turns out that, I, uh, that Microsoft have been incredibly well positioned with OpenAI, with ChatGPT, and introducing AI into Copilot. Uh, we think that this is a, just a terrific company that can continue to grow revenues and earnings at a very attractive rate. And for Alphabet? Yeah, so Alphabet, um, we think that Alphabet, again, has a very sizable runway of growth ahead of it. Um, it's dominant in uh, advertising through its core search product. Uh, it has a strong position in YouTube. Uh, it has a very nice cloud business. They are the number three player, but we think ultimately there are, th there are three big players in cloud, and Google Cloud will be one of them. Uh, they're still at an early stage of growth there. Um, we think that it's interesting to note that uh, we saw an acceleration in the core search business and YouTube to double digit in this latest quarter. Um, we think that that's sustainable. And in AI, although they've not made as much noise as Microsoft or some others, we think that they'll be one of the main players in that area. So if you put all that together and you look at the valuation, we think it all comes at a fairly reasonable valuation. Uh, and that's why we like Alphabet. Mm -hmm. And the other thing on Alphabet, I guess, because earlier on we spoke about the competition for eyeballs. One of the things as a team that we've concluded on Alphabet is that um, engagement at YouTube is increasing at a time where we cannot say the same about other social media platforms. So that's one of the reasons I guess we're quite happy to own it despite the comments we made earlier around uh, the competition for eyeballs. Yes, precisely. And then NVIDIA, of course, um, as I said, NVIDIA has been growing like a weed this year. We held it last year. It wasn't such a good stock, but this year it's been terrific. Um, we've seen huge demand for uh, its products, its high-performance chips. Uh, it, it has a very moated position in GPUs. And, of course, they pioneered accelerated computing, which is uh, the combination of a GPU alongside a CPU. And we still think that's very much in the early stages of adoption, perhaps less than 10% of the world servers today are accelerated. And so, so what you really have with NVIDIA is this platform agnostic beneficiary of AI. And we think it's a platform that could become, you know, a very material recurring revenue driver over time. I don't know if you listened to the recent uh, podcast on Acquired uh, featuring the NVIDIA CEO. One of the things that really stood out to me is his day one mentality. And one of the things he says is, 
we try to do the really tough things and do them really well, the things that nobody else has done. And I think that really speaks to the culture of NVIDIA because a lot of the time people will ask, you know, how, how confident are you about the moat trajectory? But actually, this is a company that not only is a leader, as you said, with 80% market share, but is reinventing itself every time to stay relevant, which is quite amazing. I think that's right. I mean, uh, Jensen Huang founded NVIDIA, I think back in 1993, but for the first 10 years, uh, I think they had sort of existential crisis after yeah. existential crisis. And so um, the culture of that company in some ways uh, is based off that, you know, very formative experience of uh, the desire to to succeed. The day one mindset, just like us, Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> so I mentioned, and I promised that we were going to come back to AI. Um, so I do want to come back to AI now because you did mention it both with, um, actually for all of them, NVIDIA, Alphabet, and Microsoft. So my question to you is, do you think one needs to own the mega caps to benefit from AI or could you benefit from the trend in other ways? Well, I do think that some of the AI trends are more obvious in some of the mega cap companies. And uh, we, we we mentioned NVIDIA, we mentioned uh, Alphabet and Microsoft. But I do think equally there are ways of getting exposure uh, outside of the mega cap companies. And maybe just to give you a few examples, I mean, at Finley Park, we've always liked the picks and shovels approach to investing. And I think that's true in technology too. And an example within that is IT services and IT advice providers such as Accenture or Gartner. So CEOs today they need to prepare for AI, they need to move to the cloud, and they need me to move and get their data sets in order. And I think uh, Accenture is already starting to see um, a nascent business in AI, but uh, actually the bigger business, their cloud business, a $35 billion plus business of just moving business to the cloud, I think they're going to be a big beneficiary there. A Gartner, uh, on the other hand, provides you know IT advice. Uh, anytime the world is changing rapidly, um, you know companies, corporates are going to need advice, and so uh, they have seen an acceleration in their backlog, and uh, we expect growth to to accelerate. And uh, it's a, it's another nice picks and shovels company that I think should be a beneficiary of AI. Uh, and another interesting stat that I saw, actually, I think around 45% of companies uh, reporting this most recent season mentioned something along the lines of AI during their earnings call, which is quite fascinating. Just to your point around how many CEOs will need to think about what does this mean for their companies? And this will obviously be beneficial for the likes of Accenture and Gardner. Exactly. But I think we've got companies in the portfolio that, frankly, have been talking about AI for a meaningful period of time intuit for instance um, you know software company that we've held in the portfolio that provides software to small and medium-sized businesses where they've been using ai for a number of years to help drive growth through differentiated products you know ai is not new to intuit um, but uh, they had this product intuit assist uh, that is potentially going to be a game changer in accelerating adoption of their products so just another example, um, but one that hasn't been talking about it just for the last quarter or two. Exactly. And I think, you know, there's another aspect of the AI here, which is that I think it's going to lead to a lot of productivity savings for companies uh, and uh, particularly companies that have knowledge workers. You know, um, talking about Jensen Huang, I think he said, uh, CEO of NVIDIA, he said that chat GPT, in his opinion, was the is the best software product ever in history. In fact, you know, it's the best app that's ever been written because essentially 
everyone can become a software programmer via ChatGPT, and that is going to, you know, in his opinion, going to transform society. So, are you planning to change careers, Anthony? Well, I have been doing a little bit more software <laughs> programming through uh, through ChatGPT, but um, uh, it's at the at the very basic level, Sally. <laughs> well, Anthony, we've talked a lot about the mega caps, and as you've alluded to earlier, we only own about ten percent collectively in the three that you mentioned. Um, so maybe shifting away from mega caps a little bit. Uh, what other opportunities are you seeing for our fund? Well, we have been seeing a lot of ideas over the last 18 months to two years in the mid-cap space. So in fact, 70% of the ideas that have come into the fund over that period have been in that three to $50 billion market cap range. And, and frankly, we see better risk-adjusted opportunities here. Why is that? Well, I think, first of all, better valuations. I mean, these uh, mid-cap companies used to trade at a premium to the market uh, 10 years ago, and today they're trading at a meaningful discount. As a result of that, uh, we believe they were less well covered. Uh, they haven't been a flavor of the last decade with so much focus that the mega caps have had. And with that in mind, new mid-cap companies are coming into the portfolio across a really a broad section a cross section of different sectors of different industries from health to industrials to business services and so on and i think the final point i'd make here is the reindustrialization of america and we've seen huge bipartisan support and a multi-year stimulus program whether it's the ira the iija the CHIPS Act. And these are multi-year tailwinds to drive additional revenue growth for some of our mid-cap companies that have a more domestic bias, uh, really over a number of years. And with this evolution uh, of the fund towards the more mid-cap companies, three to 50 billion, as we've uh, said repeatedly, um, do you think we are compromising on the quality of the type of businesses we own or increasing the cyclicality of the fund? We we don't believe so, Sello. We think we're investing in world-class businesses that in some other markets actually may be large caps, but because America has so many of these are more like mid caps. Um, you know, the investment philosophy that we've applied rigorously for the last 25 years, those checklist scores have remained consistent over the last couple of years as we've evolved more of the fund towards mid-cap stocks. Net leverage is very important to us. And if you look at the net leverage, the, the debt for the overall fund in terms of debt to EBITDA, uh, it's around 1.5 times today. So well below that of the overall market. Um, liquidity of the fund has barely changed over the last two years. And so overall, uh, we, we don't believe that we've introduced greater risk or greater cyclicality. Uh, these are really high quality companies that we're particularly excited about. We're really excited about the opportunities that we're finding in this mid-cap area, and that should allow us to generate you know, continued good compounding, risk-adjusted compound returns over the long term. And on that note, what's really reassuring is that despite being uh, significantly underweight, these mega caps, our performance year-to-date has kept up with the index with a very diversified portfolio of companies, as you say. Yeah, that's been pleasing that we've managed to keep keep pace with the market uh, with a much more diversified fund across uh, sectors, industries and stocks. And in fact, when you look at that performance year to date, it has come from a very broad cross section of companies. I think six sectors in total. Um, well, Anthony, thanks so much for your time today. Always a pleasure to speak to you about these things. And I'm sure our listeners will appreciate having a deeper understanding of why we are positioned the way we are and why we are excited about the next decade to come. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Sally. Okay.